You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. HuntStand is the most popular and functional mobile hunting app on the market. With a variety of base maps to choose from, satellite imagery that is updated every month, the ability to check the weather, no property information, and even catalog your trail cam picks, HuntStand even gives you the ability to import pins and location markers from other mobile apps. Visit HuntStand.com or download wherever you download your apps. Enter discount code SN20 at checkout for 20% off. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin-cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Average Conservationist Podcast, brought to you in partner with 2% for Conservation. 2% for Conservation's mission is to create an alliance of businesses and individuals that ensure the future of hunting and angling by committing their time and dollars to fish and wildlife. 1% of your time plus 1% of your money equals 2% for conservation. 2% helps businesses and people pair with conservation causes to support things that fit what they care about. Whether you are into hunting, fishing, or just getting outdoors, 2% can help you not only start giving back to wildlife, but get certified for it. Getting 2% certified means you've made the same commitment as popular brands like Sitka, Stone Glacier, and Seek Outside in giving at least 1% of your time and dollars back to wildlife. But it's not just for outdoor companies. Breweries, contractors, coffee roasters, and even piano repair companies have earned 2% certification and stand out as leaders in their communities for doing so. Businesses that, businesses that are committed to conservation deserve your business when you shop. Learn more about 2% for conservation at fishandwildlife.org. That's fishandwildlife.org. All right. <clears throat> Happy Wednesday. Welcome back, everyone, to the Average Conservationist Podcast, and I'm your host, Marcus Ewing. I'm going to apologize right now. Um, I spent the weekend at the Western Hunt Expo with the guys from Heartside Hydration and came back with a terrible, terrible cold. So if I cough or I sound extremely congested uh, during the intro, I apologize. Um, but nevertheless, this week on the podcast, <clears throat> I have Zach Hansen, and Zach is the author of newly published book, Turning Feral, A Modern Journey of Hunting, Trapping, and Living Intentionally in the Wilderness. Not only that, Zach uh, is the CEO of The Outfitter Guide, one of the hunting industry's first true software companies. So <clears throat> I actually ran into Zach, or I, I got introduced to Zach. He was hanging out with the guys from Mountain Tough Fitness, and um, you know we got to speaking a little bit, and just kind of hearing his story 
um, you know, while we were sitting there chatting, I, you know, immediately thought that, you know, this would be uh, a really cool um, guest to have on. He's got a really cool story. Uh, the way he kind of fell into hunting, uh, fell in, it's not the right word, the way he was introduced to hunting, um, you know, and the situation that he's in, um, as I mentioned before, living intentionally in the wilderness. Zach talks about it, uh, you know, throughout the course of the episode of, you know, living in a very remote part of uh, the West and, you know, how he has really just immersed himself in this outdoor lifestyle. Um, you know, it's funny because Zach is, um, he's a software engineer. Um, I believe that's right. Yeah. Software developer, software engineer. I should know this. Um, but he's worked with, you know, fortune 500 companies, um, and to see him go the route that he did, because typically, you know, when you think of, you know, software developers, you think of kind of big tech, uh, big cities, West Coast, maybe the East Coast, things like that. But you don't think of living in the remote wilderness. And that's exactly uh, what Zach is doing. And I think since, um, you know, really immersing himself in the outdoors, he wanted to come up with a product um, that could really help um, a lot of these uh, guide businesses uh, on the back end. So that's what he and his business partner did. Um, this is a super cool conversation. It was one, as I mentioned, that I didn't expect to have, uh, but very fortunate and very happy that it did uh, because Zach is is just an awesome dude. Uh, so I think you guys are really, really going to enjoy this. So episode 140 with Zach Hansen. Enjoy. All right. I am here <coughs> with Zachary Hansen from the Outfitter Guide. We're sitting here at the uh, 2023 Western Expo, Western Hunt Expo. Conservation Expo, yeah. Um, <clears throat> and, yeah, Zach is, uh, as I mentioned, the owner of the Outfitter Guide, and we wanted to sit down, recent author of a book that we'll kind of get into as well. But first off, Zach, kind of uh, introduce yourself, tell the people a bit about, uh, you know, what it is that the Outfitter Guide is and, and kind of how you kind of came to this point. Yeah, man. Well, first off, thanks for having me on the podcast and for joining us at our booth. Uh, yeah. So my name is Zach Hansen. I am an adult onset hunter. So <laughs> there I did you go. not get into any of this stuff until I was in my 30s, which is what the book's all about. Uh, but this past year, uh, a couple buddies of mine, guides that I know, we started a company called The Outfitter Guide, and it's just a software company built around making the back end, back office, administrative tasks for outfitters much easier and we're launching in two weeks so we got a booth here we're here with our partners at mountain tough fitness and just kind of hanging out and meeting people meeting outfitters the whole lot so as an adult onset hunter <clears throat> what uh like what what made you what kind of piqued your curiosity right like what got you into it how did how did you find yourself you know finding hunting later on in life yeah you know i grew up in the southeast of so south carolina i was always around hunting yeah it was always on the periphery i had some you know uncles that hunted my granddad hunted some but it was never a situation where i was taken out hunting or was regularly exposed to it but fast forward almost 30 years yeah always into fitness so i wrestled done jujitsu since i was 15 and my ex-wife and i uh, were on this fitness journey she was a world champion in jujitsu so we were just traveling all the time and we were doing all the things that were so annoying like counting our macros doing these things <laughs> trying to get any edge we could and part of that conversation ended up falling around, well, what about wild game? You know, we yeah. started to look at the meat we were eating, 
and that's what got me curious about hunting as an adult and kind of pushed me over the edge to kind of explore it a little bit more seriously. So when that time came, is that when you made the move to Montana? I mean, were you guys still in the southeast there? Like, I mean, obviously, Bozeman, you know, kind of this whole region. I mean, we're in Utah now, but this, you know, this kind of whole region of the country is a mecca for so yeah. many different things, right? Like, so had you been out here before or, or did it, you know, that whole journey kind of culminate with you moving out here? It kind of culminated moving out. And so actually, you know, we're partnered with our buddies here in Bozeman, but we're uh, based up in Idaho. Okay. Yep. So we're up around Boise. I actually live in a cabin in Atlanta, Idaho, Okay. which is a town of 35 people at the end of an 80 mile dirt road. But similarly, <laughs> you know, it, it all started with that nexus of starting to get into hunting. But when I decided to move up here, I actually had a kind of catalytic event in my life, which was a divorce with yeah. my ex-wife, an unexpected divorce. Um, but to answer your question, I had been here once. Okay. I had been up to Stanley, Idaho, with on a vacation with my ex-wife in May at one point. This was right when I was starting to hunt. Hadn't shot an animal yet. And we drove up in our drive from Boise to Stanley, Idaho. I saw a bald eagle chasing a Canadian goose. Yeah, that was very uh, wild. Apropos, yeah. Uh, elk, mule deer, antelope. You know, we saw a wolf on a hike up near one of the Alpine lakes. This was all in like a three-day period, and it just was truly soul-shifting for me. And I remember looking at my ex-wife in the little Airbnb or whatever we had in Stanley, and I said, we're moving here. And, of course, she hemmed and hauled. She's like, you know, maybe 20 years, whenever I retire from. She was an FBI special agent. So whenever oh, I retire wow. from the agency, I'm like, no, no, you don't understand. Like, We need to go I- now. I'm called here. <laughs> and lo and behold, unbeknownst to me, four months later, I'd have that opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, so that was it. So <clears throat> as – and I'm always curious this because I've certainly talked to a number of people on the podcast here that identify like you do as, you know, an adult onset hunter. Mm-hmm. Right, and, and everyone kind of gets into it or they, they find hunting later in life for different reasons. Yep. Yours, <coughs> I don't think, is is too different than, than some of the ones I've talked to where there's the curiosity behind, you know, kind of, you know, sustenance, mm-hmm. you know, being able, you know, knowing where your meat came from, um, knowing that it's from a, you know, nutritional standpoint. It's, I don't even know if you could make the argument, but I would say it's arguably the best protein yep. that one can put in their body. What, I mean, what did that kind of like that first trip, like that first outing by yourself, what did that look like? I mean, were you, were, I mean, were you exposed to it? Like when you kind of got into it, like had friends that you kind of like leaned on or were you like, you know what, I'm just going to figure this out. It was more of the latter. Okay. Uh, so I ended up buying, when I was still in Louisiana, uh, used single cam Matthew's bow from a buddy that was about an inch and a half too short on draw length for me. <laughs> uh Built a range in my backyard and stubbornly learned to shoot it after dry firing it, after doing everything wrong you could imagine, but following YouTube. Eventually, I was able to hit a target and then got consistent, was able to shoot you know, thousands of arrows. And yeah. eventually, it's like, well, where do I start? Right. And one of the things that I don't think a lot of people talk about is how confusing for a non-hunter it is to figure out licensing. Especially seasons. out west here. Well, this was still in Louisiana. Oh, okay. It still okay. wasn't that easy. Yeah. I mean, you're right. Take the West, you up at another notch. But even Louisiana, it's like, I got to go to a field day and do what and oh, get a license. Yeah. And it was Hunter just, safety, all that good stuff, right? Oh, yeah. And it wasn't clear. There wasn't a lot that I was able to find that made it very simple. But ultimately, I fumbled my way through there. And I'm like, well, I don't know what I'm doing. I can shoot a bow now. And I stumbled across a, an outfitter. I'm using air quotes for those who are listening here. <laughs> uh, based in the middle of nowhere, Arkansas, who had private land where he had a lot of pigs so 
a buddy of mine who was also starting around the same time went up to Arkansas and started pig hunting. Which I hear is fun. I've well, not done it, but I heard it's I heard it's a ton it's a blast. Well one of the things Proceed. Yeah. <laughs> one of the things when you're starting hunting, right, you you're shooting a bow, you start to envision I had like a little pig three D target, so I was shooting at that, just nailing it twenty, thirty, forty yards, whatever, I was ready. But what I didn't realize is we were going to be hunting pigs over feeders out of tree stands. Okay. I'd never been in a tree. had no idea how to shoot at an angle or draw from sitting down. That is different. That is different. But what was even more different is in the lead up, I had thought of every single scenario that would happen while I was on that hunt. Like how that first shot was going to go. Oh, yeah. I was going to see this pig walk in. It's going to be nibbling on corn. It's going to be broadside. Thwack. Right? Done. But I did not prepare myself for the most realistic reality, which was nothing. <laughs> not having an opportunity. Right. So for, you know, two and a half days, I sat in a tree stand freezing my, you know, what's off, waiting for this moment. I'd been thinking about in my head for months while I practiced with this bow that was too short for me. And nothing <laughs> happened, right? It, it was one of those things that is very common in hunting. Yeah, all too common. Yeah, but you know, no one prepared me for that, and that was my first experience hunting. That turns a lot of guys off. It does, right? It like, you know, you have these expectations, or you've you've seen enough, and that's a, like that's I think one of the things about social media, and mm-hmm. I think social media certainly has its place in the outdoors, especially from an educational standpoint, uh, and you know, uh, like a tutorial and, and training and, and all of these things there's there's a, a plethora of great things that can come out of it what it oftentimes doesn't show is like what you just touched on it doesn't show you know the the five days that you're sitting out in the cold you don't see anything you you know you, you see one deer off in the distance for example and but you know like youtube or whatever they you know they show a lot of the highlights but then ultimately it comes down to you know the kill shot yeah. and, and things like that and how that whole scenario plays out and yeah, it's um, it's kind of a rude awakening for a lot oh, of yeah. us, right? Like I've I've certainly spent more time in a tree stand and, and you know focusing on primarily hunting like whitetail, and yeah, I've had way more days where I, I haven't seen anything than days where I've seen deer or seen a deer that I would consider something I'd want to shoot. So right, it uh, <clears throat> okay. So you had that first experience. How did it go from there? It, it, it evolved. So I finally had a little bit of courage. So my ex-wife's family was a hunting family from Middle Tennessee. Um, yeah. In the roots. It, well, yeah. That's yeah, in, in the, the DNA. Mecca. And it was, again, one of those things I had just ignored. It was always there for me. Yeah. And I think when I started dabbling, I was too nervous or embarrassed or my ego was in the way to ask my father-in-law at the time, like, help me. And when I finally got skunked on the pig hunt, it was getting close to deer season. I was like, you know what? I'm going to ask. Yeah. And asking was that first step to opening pandora's box to him not being like uh now i gotta have someone wanting to hunt on my leases it was just this open arms like that's awesome i'm gonna teach you boy yeah and I'm, it was the I'm thing learn you today oh yeah what well, was the interesting thing too and you know you doing whitetail like i'm obviously out west do more western hunting but that first experience of whitetail hunting i had this stigma in my head of what it was with tree stand hunting yeah but it's a science, and he showed me what a science was. Like, all of a sudden, I was getting blown up on my phone with, you know, pins of shooting lanes, of tree stands, clover fields, where he's planted, you okay. know, X, Y, Z, you know, pictures of target deer that he's been going after for a while. Like, it was a science. Yeah, it is. And it was dialed in. 
So how long were you in the game, let's call it, until you had that first successful hunt? And a what year. was the animal? A year, and it was a deer on my father-in-law's lease. Okay. Uh, it was funny. I actually had started this journey with a buddy. We went on the pig hunt together, and then we went out hunting at the lease. Mm-hmm. And he actually shot his first deer, which was a doe, at 30 yards okay. uh, one weekend. And then I didn't get anything. So then I got up, like, the next couple of weeks from Louisiana to Tennessee. And every day before, while it was still deer season, before my work started, because I work in artificial intelligence, so I have a regular 9-to-5 job. Right. I'd be out in that tree stand, and then one day I just saw this beautiful little eight-point buck just trotting along, and it was on a mission and crossed right under my tree stand, and it was not stopping, and I didn't have the knowledge to kind of, like, chirp at it or do anything. So I set one quartering away from me as he was going, nailed him, and he dropped within 50 yards. That's awesome. That's awesome. I mean, the I want to go back real quick. I kind of breezed over there, and I didn't mean to. Talking about, like, taking that first step, right, mm-hmm. to to talk to your, your then father-in-law about the position, you know, that you had certainly taken an interest to it, right? You wanted to take that next step, but you, you had questions, right? Mm-hmm. You, you needed someone to, to really kind of take you under their wing and, and teach you more about, like, hunting itself. And I find that that's one of the biggest things that holds people up, oh, yeah. right, is, is that they like, – I hate to say ego – because I think a lot of people don't have an ego, but it's their pride. Yeah. Right? Like they're afraid to like be vulnerable, especially to like another adult male, right? Like I think we can both probably agree on that, that as males, that's not a strong trait yeah. that we possess with, um, you know, kind of putting ourselves out there. And I, I'm not surprised by the reception that you got because yeah. I think that, and, and maybe you've gotten to that point. So how long have you been hunting now? Uh, five years, okay. six years. So you've been doing it for a decent amount of time, but every, you know, outdoorsman, outdoors woman, every hunter, let's say, gets to the point in their journey where they've had some success. They're, they're starting to figure things out, right? And they've gotten so much joy out of it that they then want to share that with other people. And I would tend to guess that your father-in-law, that's where he was at, right? He's like, oh, yeah. I just want to teach people. I know how much fun he, I got out of it, you know, speaking for him how much joy he gets, let me let me share that with anyone that's willing to. Yeah, I mean, I, I was ecstatic, but, you know, I could tell the joy he was sharing in that moment. A, because it wasn't like he just put me in a tree stand and automatically I shot a deer, right? Right. I was out there working and trying and failing, and all of a sudden I did get it out by myself. And, you know, he actually – I called him, and it was – he was already gone to work. Yeah. He turned around and came back. Oh, just that's like, awesome. You know, didn't go into work that day. That's awesome. Stayed to help me and start to process the deer and do all those things. So what was the transition like from, you know, hunting, you know, in the south there, you make the move out here, and now you're chasing, you know, western big, big game, game and no more tree stands. No more you tree know, There's stands. no more feeders. Nope. You know, you're, you're glassing, stalk. you're hiking, you're doing all that stuff. What was that transition like for you? Tough. Yeah. Um, it was tough in so much that I had no idea where to start. So, you know, I moved from Louisiana up to a town of 35 people in Idaho where my backyard now opened to 3,500 acres of public land. Yeah. And for me, I was like, everyone's like, oh, DIY, DIY. DIY is the way to do. You're not a real hunter if you're not doing Hot DIY. Hot button phrase right there. Oh, yeah. And it was frustrating because I'm like, well, I don't know how to bugle. I don't know how to do any of this. I don't know any of it. So 
I was thankfully in a position where I did have some means. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to beat down this learning curve. Yeah. So I got a guide. So my first elk hunt I went out that year was with a outfitter. And I looked at it not as just a, a outfitted guide because, you know, I ended up not harvesting an animal in that first right. hunt. However, I said, this is education. Absolutely. I'm going there and I'm treating him like my father-in-law. Like I'm going to be that annoying kid. Asking a ton of questions. Oh, I had like a notebook before I left, truly, of questions because I'm like, I know I'm going to do this and I want to log it and I want to ask these questions that I've, you know, of things I've seen on YouTube or tactics, you know, what's real, what's not real, yeah. what actually works, where we're going. And it was awesome. And now, I did that for my first two years. And did you do that uh, in Idaho there? I did. Okay. You know, I think that's, especially if you have the means to do it, yeah. like that's a great approach to take because one, it's certainly, like you said, it's going to beat down that learning curve, mm -hmm. right? Because, I mean, you know, guys, especially like, you know, I'm, I'm in Michigan and we'll come out west to, to do like elk hunting or something. And, you know, you can do a lot of e-scouting. You can do as much preparation as you can prior to. Yep. But nothing's going to be boots on the ground. Nothing's going to be actual interaction. And if, you know, if you know, someone like me, if I'm coming out west with two or three of my buddies, like they probably have the same level of, of experience that I do when it comes to, you know, chasing elk or mule deer or something like mm -hmm. that. So we're all like saying the same things to each other. We all have the same experience. But if you can spend five, seven days with someone who's been doing this for 10, oh, 20, yeah. 30 years, right? Like the little bits of insight and knowledge that you can glean from that. I mean, it's, it's hard to put. I don't even know if you can put a price on it, right? No. I mean, well, you can. <laughs> yeah, they <laughs> certainly they do. do. Trust they me. They certainly do. Uh, however, you, you're right. And you know, a little bit of a foreshadowing that experience too was what spurred the company at the booth that you and I are sitting at right now, the Outfitter Guide, because as you go into that, and if you're somebody like myself who wanted to learn everything, outfitters tending or tend to not be customer focused. Most of the guys who are out guiding, you know, they want to be on their combine or out scouting or doing the things that really matter for actually getting right. people out in the field, you know, setting up spike camps, whatever it is tending the horses and what i was missing in that lay period between the time i finally put my first deposit down to the time i was actually out in the field on a horse going out into the middle of nowhere is i already had questions like i said i was building a notebook so i wanted to be able to reach out and say well how are we going to eat like, what are we eating like you know, what happens if we get an animal like, right am i caping it out like if i want to shoulder mount euro mat all these just little things that they don't have time for and that's kind of was the nexus of the outfitter guide to help prepare the hunter and take the burden off the outfitter. But nonetheless, I went through the process. It was great. I learned a ton. I did it for two years and now I do mostly DIY hunts. But, you know, for instance, two weeks ago, I went down to Arizona, never done desert hunting. So I went with an outfitter. How was that? Well, I mean, it was great. We didn't get an animal. Yeah. Yeah. We spent, it was a different type of hunting because where I elk hunt, especially archery in the rut, you're not really glassing a ton. No. You're but down there, oh, my goodness. It was A lot of wide open country. Oh, yeah. Sun up to sun down, just glassing. And over a seven-day hunt, we saw four bucks. Was it for mule deer or elk? It was for mule deer. Okay. Yep, here it was in January. So, so you've had – I'm going to just try to kind of fill in the gaps here. So you've had now, you know, five to six years of, of experience, both both guided and learning stuff. You know, DYI, on your own, all yep. of that. I want to transition to the book because your book, Turning Feral, A Modern Journey of Hunting, 
trapping, and living intentionally in the wilderness. One, was writing a book ever even on your radar? The answer is yes. Okay. Yeah, I, I actually had written a book before, and I've written a few books since, kind of in the Western genre. So I like to write. Okay. So it's always been there, done blogs, things like that. But actually, when I went through my divorce, I had a different book on my mind, which was how to kind of get through a divorce and keep a friendship. Yeah. Because my ex-wife and I, it was unexpected for me, but we treated each other with kindness and we got through it. But as I went through and I was actually getting my own therapy through these experiences in the woods, and I was learning to trap, learning to hunt, spending all my time in the woods just processing everything I'd been through, that book morphed into, like, just my experience. Yeah. As an adult onset hunter, all the things I was learning, all the things I was experiencing and truly healing me just kind of naturally formed itself. Came onto the pages. Yeah. The outdoors has a a very interesting way of of healing us, regardless of the situation. It could be divorce. It -hmm. could be the loss of a family member. Being outdoors... And you hear a lot of guys talk about this, like, oh, it's mm-hmm. nice to just connect with nature and things like that. And I, and I don't discredit what they're saying, or I, you know, and I certainly believe that. But for those who have gone through hardships and have kind of found solace in the outdoors, I mean, it's such a powerful thing, man. Yeah. Was it something that when you were going through that hard time, was it something that you kind of really leaned into? Yeah, because for me, it was an opportunity that I found myself in every day to feel small. Yeah, it, it put things in perspective daily because where I was living, it was wild. There's no cell phone service. There were consequences for the actions that I was taking. And oftentimes I was in over my head in a lot of those times yeah. without proper mentorship. And yeah, it would just constantly put things in perspective to where if I found myself going in this little bit of a rabbit hole of, you know, woe is me. All I had to do is go back, throw some snowshoes on, take some beaver traps, go down to the river, and all of a sudden everything was melting. I'm like, oh, this is – I'm a speck here. How did – I mean, because I think the the art of trapping is – a lot of people call it a lost art. Right? Oh, yeah. Because a lot of people just don't do it anymore. How did you find yourself going down that route, you know, like on top of the hunting um, and, and, and that? I mean, was it just – more curiosity or did someone say hey you know if, you, if you're big into hunting like you li- maybe you live in a great area where you can run trap lines mm-hmm. or something like that what what brought you down that path i had always been fascinated though i'd never hunted as a kid with mountain men so i'd always had this idea in my head of taking a trap getting beaver coyotes wolf whatever and when i went out there i talked to some old timers in town who used to trap okay and they're like no one's trapped this area for so long blah 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 and it just put this spark in my mind and i ended up going down to rocky mountain fur and firework in caldwell idaho and the ladies there of all people were like oh we'll get you set up you know (laughs) they saw you coming eh oh yeah they knew it but they did they really did and they didn't just get me set up they educated me and it was amazing and what's funny is we talk about hunting we talk about trapping and i've been i will say pretty well welcomed into the hunting world yeah you know, most people, like my ex-father-in-law, most people have been pretty open. But I have also run into resistance in the hunting space. Why um, Why do you think that is? Or, or where was the, the pushback coming from? Uh, some of the, especially coming into a place like Idaho, it's like a, no room for outsiders. You know, gotcha. like we, we've got too many public land hunters. We don't need any more new people coming in. 
little like territorial stuff. It okay. Felt like. All right, I got you. Um, but trapping, unequivocally, and I've talked about this on other podcasts, has been the most welcoming group of people that want to mentor will go out of their way to just be open armed. Like we need you. Not only we need you, but like we want to bring you along on the journey so we do not lose trapping. And that's people who are running in similar areas to you. Okay. It's been unbelievable for me how trapping is going. And to that end, I feel like I've kind of taken to trapping almost more than hunting. Yeah. There's a lot of parallels. This trapping has made me a better hunter and vice versa. But yeah. Well, great I, group. I think it, it makes you understand the lay of the land a oh, lot yeah. better. Right? And because patterning not, animals. Exactly. Right? It, which is, I mean, I can see how the two could be mutually beneficial to one another mm-hmm. from a skill set standpoint, right? Like like learning about certain animals and their um, their habits, right? From, you know, whether it's bedding, it's feeding, yep. the travel, you know, corridors that, they're, that they may be taking, how they're using the landscape to their advantage and how you can then use that to your advantage when it comes to setting lines and stuff. I'm curious, and I, you, you kind of touched on it there, and I think you kind of alluded to it, but why that group of outdoorsmen or out, you know, outdoors women, why they were so much more welcoming. And I think you kind of, you mentioned it there. It's again, it it goes back to, I think it being a bit of a a lost art form Mm -hmm. and people are afraid that, Hey, if we don't get more people involved, like this is just going to disappear. Like when our generation dies, like so does trapping. Well, I mean, I think it's a little bit of an education thing too. Uh, You meet trappers and some of them are very well educated, but I don't think there's been, there's not a big PR engine. Like, there's great groups like National Trappers Association, Idaho Trapper Association, Montana Trapper Association. They're all fantastic, but you know, people just have a weird preconceived notion of like that foot trap with the jaws on it, right? Mm-hmm. That's illegal. You're not going to do that. Like, yeah. What's funny is the trappers that I've worked with, the trappers I've associated with, you know, some of them are the most focused on conservation that I've ever met. For instance. Like, we have trappers that I know, uh, a guy named Tucker Braun. Like they'll carry penicillin and other injections if they have a non-target animal, whether that's a domestic canine. Okay. Or, you know, if you catch a bobcat out of the season, not only are they going to release this animal, they're going to give it a little shot just to make sure that it's going to heal up. Yeah, no infections or no anything infections, like that. No infections, anything like that. And this is people doing this at their own cost and, you know, everything else like that. But, you know, the just preconceived notion of the cruelty of it. Yeah. And the fact that it's probably one of the most humane ways to do predator control i would agree with that and it's um when you talked about the group uh, of trappers and and being some of the the biggest conservationists that you've come encounter with or come across i would certainly echo that because i think you know kind of taking that one step further like hunters in general i think are some of the the biggest if not the biggest you know, conservationists out there. And for a lot of people who don't operate in the outdoor space, like if you don't hunt or you don't mm-hmm. fish or trap or forage or anything, that forage doesn't really, you know, because you're not taking the life of an animal. But they don't see how you can shoot a deer, you can shoot an elk, you can, you know, trap, you know, um, you know certain animals and how they see that as conservation or, or why is it, Zach, that you and I care so much about, you know, white-tailed deer or elk, mm-hmm. but yet we spend an immense amount of time scouting and then actually trying to take these off the landscape. Well, I think it's, it's also just being out there. 
Yeah. Because, for instance, like where I'm at, kind of going back to your earlier question, I didn't have – trapping wasn't something that was on my agenda when I moved to Idaho. It was part of me talking to the old-timers. Mm -hmm. But not only that, but seeing the impact of a couple things. One, we have one road in, one road out of the town. We had some <laughs> beaver who were not being trapped out, wash out our one-way-in, one-way-out road, caused millions of dollars of damage, falling trees across the road. You know, we had a, a hydroelectric dam that we run in town and upriver from that. They would reduce the water by a foot, and all of a sudden we don't have power. Oh, geez. And then when you're going up and down that road in the winter, you find deer kill, elk kill, elk kill, deer kill, elk kill. All these predators. All the wolves because we yeah. have five packs running around there. And when you see it with your own eyes, because you – Usually you could be pretty well removed from it if you live. Even if you're in Boise, you're never going to see that. Right. And you're within 20 miles of where this is happening. Yeah. But you get out there and you're living it every day. You see the impact. And it's not a small impact. How – so as, you, as you've gotten into this journey and you've certainly, you know, just kind of immersed yourself mm -hmm. in this outdoor, um, you know, being able to provide for yourself and hunting and trapping and this lifestyle, how has conservation, like – because I think, you know, conservation comes in, you know, tons of different forms, mm -hmm. you know, depending upon the person. And I don't think one is any better than the other, right? Because it takes all of us doing our part to succeed as a whole, you know, as, as a community of, of hunters. What does that look like for you? Is it is it something that you've certainly taken more notice of? Is it something that you've just, you've gained a lot more I guess, education and information on? Like, how has that kind of played into, you know, how you approach things? You know, honestly, both the hunting and the trapping, I mean, I come from like a formal education type of background, you know, undergraduate, graduate school, the whole lot. So I've always been research-based. So Fact-based. Right. Yeah. So when I got into both hunting and trapping, the first things I did were join associations. Yep. Backcountry hunters and anglers, Idaho Trapper Association, National Trapper Association. You know, it's 30 bucks, you sign up. But what it does unlock for you is this plethora of information, not only for how-tos, but also the kind of conservation efforts that are underlying a lot of what this 30 bucks a year, whatever it is, goes into. Where that money's going. Right. And then that's where you start to see, oh, these lawsuits. And, for instance, in trapping, New Mexico lost their right to trap this last year. Yeah. I think I saw that. Yeah, and, you know, unless you're doing it for the government, like, you don't have any public trapping. And now you're seeing a lot of the impacts, too, because the reports are coming out on livestock depredation, domestic animal depredation, the whole lot. So it's for me to answer that question more succinctly, it was joining an association to educate myself yeah. on that conservation. For me, as an adult coming in with a maturity and understanding, that's where I went to because that was the only source I knew to get and by virtue of that, I ended up getting educated a lot on the conservation side. Not that it was something that was particularly top of mind when I started this, right, but right. it came along with it from the route I took for education. Yeah. Well, and I think that's that's a great way to approach it is from a very, like you said, very analytical, a very fact, facts-driven, you know, state of mind. And what I tend to find is is people who kind of come from that very formal education background, like that's their approach to it, right? You know, for someone like me who, you know, like I, I grew up in the outdoors, right? Like it was, my family did it, family, you know, my, you know, gener it's been passed down from generation. So conservation, like while that word was never 
spoken. It was a lot more about the actions. Like mm -hmm. while we're in the woods, this is how you conduct yourself. Right. Um, you know, when you're when you are hunting and you are ready to take a shot, make sure that it's an ethical shot. Right. It, like like those little things that it's not until I'm older and, you know, I can think as an adult mm -hmm. where all of those lessons from early on, like that was conservation. Like that's how it was being taught to me. And I think it's just it really kind of goes back to how, you know, like how, how do, like everyone learns things differently, right? Everyone yeah. has a different process and whatever kind of avenue that takes them down, like that's going to be how they retain that information. That's going to be how all of these things make sense to them. Yeah. And you can't, even if you educate yourself kind of in a formal way, like I attempted to do mm -hmm. as an adult, and I've talked about this a lot, when you actually go out hunting, you can't read enough books can't watch enough YouTube videos oh. to understand what it's like when you do have that opportunity to take an animal. And then what happens when, inevitably, you make a wrong decision and you're stuck in a situation where maybe you didn't take an ethical shot or maybe you didn't set your trap in the right way or maybe you're not about to dispatch this trapped animal in a way that is ethical. And you're going to have these moral bending situations where you as an adult have to understand and push those bounds and figure out what you yourself are comfortable with. Yeah, you make a great point there because anyone who tells you that I've never made a bad shot, I've never wounded an animal, like either they're lying mm -hmm. or they've just not done it long enough. Yeah. Because it happens to all of us. Even if, you know, you've got a, a broadside shot at an animal at, you know, between 20 and 30 yards, which, you know, most hunters would consider a quote-unquote chip shot. Exactly. <laughs> Human error. Things happen. You get nervous. Uh, you punch the trigger on your on your release. Or um, animal quarters to you at the yeah. It takes a step it. right as you're getting ready to release the arrow, and now you you hit back or you hit that front shoulder, mm -hmm. right? And that's that's gut wrenching oh, for yeah. a hunter. Not just because man, I didn't get a deer, but it's like, did I? You know, how bad did I wound it? How oh, bad yeah. did I? Because likely you're not going to catch up to that animal. Mm -hmm. um, and if you know, if you let's say you gut shoot, gut shot something. Right, like it's a high probability that while you, you know, that deer will live for another three or four days, or it'll live for a week or a month. But infection, you know, it's going to slow it down. Now mm -hmm. predators can have a much better chance of catching up to it, and that's, you know, that's something that we just have to come to terms with, right? Like whenever we step foot into the woods, like we have to know that that that's a possibility, and we have to be okay with that, right? Otherwise, I think we're going to spend too much time, probably not taking shots, being overcautious, um, and I think sometimes taking having that mindset um you tend to make more mistakes oh yeah 100 percent. and like you said you got to get out there and do it but not many people prepare themselves for that especially if you're doing it later in life and you weren't brought up in the woods yeah you know yeah it's uh it's an interesting journey and i always love to hear um individuals that have stories like yours that they come into hunting later in life whether it's through you know you know they marry kind of a family where you know, hunting is a big deal with them or, you know, I've heard stories where, you know, a guy was just having a rough patch in life, you know, mm -hmm. for whatever the case was. And a buddy says, hey, like, we should go hunting. Like, have you ever thought about it? No, I'm not. But, yeah, I'll come out with you. And it changes their entire life. Mm -hmm. And it sounds a lot like that's something that happened with you. Like, yeah. it just it changed your life. It did, 100%. I, I'm all in, clearly. You know, yeah. I, I've turned feral, if you will. So it, it's, <laughs> And I will. It's just that emotion it, it grabs hold of you especially 
if you're in a spot of your life where you need connection to nature, one of those things that we don't have as much exposure to if you live in any sort of a metropolitan situation. Yeah. And that, if you can get that taste, it's... You, you know, know, and I worry about that. So I grew up in a, in a fairly, not as rural as, as where you currently live, but a, a rural community, mm-hmm. you know, small town of, you know, 2,000 people, oh something yeah. like that. That's right? still a small town. Yeah. And, you know, like the outdoors. And, and I think not only like geographically where I grew up, but like, you know, the time of, you know, the time of when I grew up in, you know, I was a kid in the 90s. We had, I remember growing up, I had, I had a Nintendo, like the original NES Nintendo. That was the only, like, game console I ever owned. But my parents were very big on, like, go outside and play. Mm-hmm. Go, like, I don't care what you do. Go outside and play. And as, as a parent now and living in a much more metropolitan area, like, I worry about, like, I'm, I'm very cognizant of that, right, of not allowing my kids to get kind of sucked into, into the way that, you know, kind of life is now where devices and TV and, you know, just spending time inside. It's like, no, like we, we have to get outside. We have to, you have to make that effort because it's, it's going to pay dividends that you can't even quantify as you get older. Yeah. And I, I have two young kids, very young. So two and five months. Okay. Yeah. That so, is young. but even then, like, I'm very thankful. Like my wife and I, we don't have TVs in the house. Okay. Yeah. We read, our kids love to read or well, our two year old does. But even then, she's knocking on the door every morning saying, outside, outside, outside. A, because we live in a tiny cabin, so she probably has cabin fever. Sure. But, you know, <laughs> I like to pretend that some great parenting trick was done. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, we'll drag her out on the trap line. She'll pet the animals. She'll do all these different things. And, you know, it's going to be an interesting thing for me, having been brought up in a family that wasn't hunting, yeah. to now being something that I am so passionate about. Like, how do I actually draw that line? You know, I think with them being just constantly exposed, you know, we'll let them make their own decisions on how they want to be involved. But, you know, as a parent, I'd be interested in your opinions, too, because I, I think it is a hard thing to balance. It is. It certainly is because, you know, I mean, I don't want to try to act like I've not said, hey, can you guys watch your iPad for an hour or a half mm-hmm. hour? Because I have like there's things that I have commitments, like there's things that I have to get done. Right. And that's. Unfortunately, like that's the way it is sometimes. Yeah. Um, you have to be able to – now, my kids are a little bit older. My kids are six and almost four. Well, even ours, you know, the iPad comes out when Coco Melon needs to come in and yeah. be the mediator mm-hmm. of the grudge match we're in. Yes. And it happens. And, and it's, it's okay. But I think having the wherewithal, right, like being cognizant of those things, as I mentioned, like I think that's the first step. And, yeah, there's going to be times where, you know what, you have a day or you have a week where it's like, man, they spent a lot of time – inside or on a device or something like that and i think from a parent's standpoint you you just have to take it easy on yourself you have to say you know what these things happen it's a blip on the radar Mm -hmm. it's probably not going to register with that i think when you when you worry is when they don't want to go outside Mm -hmm. right when that no longer becomes interesting to them then it's like okay now i need to maybe make some changes or something like that but i mean i say that like i'm not i mean i I, th- I feel like I'm a good dad. But We're I all mean, learning on the fly. Yeah, that's no one, there's no, no one knows the real answer. There's no playbook for it. There's, you know, a lot of times there's no right or wrong answer. It's what you do what you think is right or what you think is best. And you just, you live with a decision and maybe it's the wrong one and you adjust the next time. And maybe it was the right one. And you go, okay, we got something here. Hey, man, that sounds a lot like hunting. The parallels. I know. There's parallels for hunting and everything that we do. You hear that out there? Um, Zach, before I let you get out of here and kind of get back to your booth that we uh, overtook here, 
where can people find The Outfitter Guide and where can people pick up a copy of Turning Frail, your book? Yeah, so if people want to check out The Outfitter.Guide, it's literally www.theoutfitter.guide. There you go. It's easy peasy. And then Turning Feral, it's available on Amazon. You can get it at Barnes & Noble, too. Um, anywhere books are sold, really. Turning okay. Feral, my name, Zachary Craig Hansen. Social um, media, anything like that? I have a LinkedIn. Yeah, yeah that's, how I, you and I, that's how you and I got yeah, in touch. Yeah, ironically so. But, uh, yeah, I don't have an Instagram, anything else like that. Tried to be a little bit on the sure. Yeah, the so non-social train as much as I can. But LinkedIn, you can reach out to me there. I'm pretty active. Um, other than that, that's about it for me. All right. Zach Hansen, Hansen, excuse me. I appreciate the time, man. It was great talking to you. I look forward to diving into the book, man. I've got a four-hour plane ride tomorrow, so I feel like it'll be a great opportunity for me to, to start diving into it. If not, finish it because it's, what, a couple hundred? Yeah just, yeah, just over 200 pages, so it looks like it should be a fairly, fairly easy, easy reader. read. So I'm, yeah, I'm excited to dive in. Zach, again, thank you, man. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. All right. Well, thank you again to Zach for sitting down and taking some time to chat with me a little um, while we were at the expo there. Uh, be sure to check out and pick up his book, Turning Feral. Um, I believe, uh, as he mentioned throughout the course of the podcast, you can pick that up uh, really wherever books are sold. Um, would also like to thank the partners of the podcast, Go Hunt, Stone Glacier, and of course, 2% for Conservation. Um, as I mentioned, be sure to go out and support those companies that support this podcast and help make it possible. And if you're interested in learning more about 2% for conservation, you can visit their website, fishandwildlife.org. And there you're going to see all the certified brands that have committed to conservation that you should support when you shop. I also encourage you guys to give 2% a follow on social media where they're going to post only positive conservation driven content. So you'll certainly enjoy that. So again, if you'd like to learn more about 2% for Conservation, you can look for them online on social media or at fishandwildlife.org. Thanks for joining me this week, everyone. Hope you enjoyed the episode with Zach. Stay tuned next week. we got another great episode coming with uh, Dustin from Mountain Tough Fitness. I was able to knock out both of those uh, while sitting in their booth. So uh, great, great conversation with Dustin. Um, but yeah, until next week, remember, conservation starts with you. Yeah.